Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Bipolar illness in the United States is common, exceedingly complicated, often progressive, and in need of careful screening and follow-up. One quarter of the illness starts before age 13 years, and two-thirds start prior to age 19 years. This early onset is, in part, attributable to a greater burden of mood disorders and other psychiatric illnesses in the parents and grandparents of patients from the United States compared to the Netherlands and Germany. This increased genetic loading is paralleled by more psychosocial stress in childhood and in the year prior to illness onset and prior to the last episode. In this study, Post and colleagues examined self-reports of illness course and poor prognosis factors in 634 adult outpatients with bipolar disorder. The study was conducted from 1995 to 2002 at four sites in the United States. The authors found that in addition to vulnerability factors, adults with bipolar disorder from the United States with an average age of 41 years have a high burden of other factors that have been associated with a more difficult course of illness in the literature one measure of which is a progressive increase in the severity or frequency of manic and depressive episodes despite treatment in the community. Factors associated with this pattern of illness progression include adversity in childhood, an early age at onset of bipolar disorder prior to 19 years, anxiety disorder comorbidity, a history of substance abuse, rapid cycling or four or more episodes per year, and having had 20 or more prior manic or depressive episodes. Physicians need to be alert to the early recognition of bipolar disorder in children and adults in order to institute appropriate treatment or referral and better deal with the multiple complicating factors associated with illness progression. Hopefully, earlier psychotherapeutic and pharmacotherapeutic intervention will yield a more benign course of illness. This research was initially funded by the Stanley Medical Research Institute. The University of Southern California's Psychiatric Pharmacy Clinic provides comprehensive medication management to a caseload of patients referred by their primary care provider to manage established psychiatric diagnoses. This study describes the types of non-psychiatric medication interventions made by the psychiatric pharmacist, the rate of acceptance by primary care providers, and opinions of primary care providers on whether the psychiatric pharmacist can co-manage medical conditions. The number of interventions was compared between groups based on substance abuse history, comorbidities, and number of medications. 177 non-psychiatric medication interventions were identified by the psychiatric pharmacist. 
Of these, 50 interventions required further action by the primary care provider, and only 45% of those were accepted. Additionally, an anonymous survey was administered to the six primary care providers caring for the same patients at the safety net clinic. Primary care providers were agreeable to having a psychiatric pharmacist provide drug information and patient monitoring, but reported mixed opinions on whether a psychiatric pharmacist should co-manage non-psychiatric conditions. Several important lessons were learned from this research. First of all, problems with medication adherence, efficacy, and safety were the most significant non-psychiatric drug therapy problems identified. Second, patients with diabetes, hypertension, or gastroesophageal reflux, and those taking greater or equal to nine medications, or with greater or equal to five medical diagnoses, were more likely to need medication optimization. Finally, recording recommendations in an electronic health record is no substitute for direct communication between providers, and it limits the ability to establish professional rapport. Psychiatric pharmacist participation at clinic meetings should be planned to improve communication among providers. Many older adults living in the community suffer from neurocognitive disorders. These individuals experience high risk for medication non-adherence and are likely to suffer from extreme consequences of this behavior. As such, informal caregivers are often called upon to aid in medication management. Although some of these dyads receive a clear diagnostic picture, it is often the case that these older adults remain undiagnosed despite cognitive limitations. The goal of this study was to examine the differences in medication management behaviors for family caregivers of mildly impaired older adults with or without a formal neurocognitive disorder diagnosis. In this study, 112 women providing at least two forms of medication assistance for a mildly cognitively impaired older adult with or without a reported neurocognitive disorder diagnosis, completed online assessments of medication adherence and self-efficacy for medication management from May 2012 to May 2013. Cases were selected for analysis based on analog clinical dementia rating scores between 0.5 and 1, indicating mild cognitive impairment in the older adult. The study results suggest that a formally charted and communicated neurocognitive disorder diagnosis is associated with improved medication management behaviors and medication-related self-efficacy in family caregivers of cognitively impaired older adults. Thus, a formal diagnosis of a neurocognitive disorder may improve both provider-patient and provider family communications and resulting regimen adherence. In order to establish a true causal link, future studies should employ a prospective methodology in which medication-related behaviors and confidence in managing medications are measured before and after a neurocognitive disorder diagnosis in the older adult. 
The study was funded by the University of Missouri-St. Louis Express Scripps Research Program. Mechanical restraints can be psychologically harmful for patients and staff, and use should be kept to a minimum. To reduce such procedures in their inpatient psychiatric unit, the authors of this study designed a guideline centered in the clinical management of patients with personality disorders. The development and implementation of the guideline was a collaborative process in which almost all staff was involved. Guideline preparation and staff training occurred through the last quarter of 2010. To measure the effect of this guideline on the use of mechanical restraints, the authors compared data from 2010 with that from 2011. The use of restraints in patients with personality disorders fell from 47.7%, a fairly common figure compared to other hospitals, in 2010 to only 2.7% in 2011. The impact of the study went beyond personality disorders, and use of restraints in patients with other diagnoses declined in similar proportion. This notable reduction in use of mechanical restraints may be related to the whole process of development and implementation of the guideline and global collaboration of the staff, and not to the guideline per se. The authors point out that this process has reduced staff uncertainty regarding how to act when confronted by a patient's behavior and has permitted staff members to act in a more relaxed way, feeling they are following clear rules well known by the other health professionals and by the patients themselves. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, occurs in some individuals exposed to physical and mental violence and trauma. These individuals experience disturbing intrusive memories of the event in the form of recurring flashbacks, avoidance or numbing of memories of the event, and hyperarousal. In addition, they commonly report insomnia and nightmares with sleep disturbance. The purpose of this issue's continuing medical education offering is to highlight the importance of the recognition and management of sleep disorders in patients with PTSD. There is a growing body of evidence that patients with PTSD are at risk for movement disorders during sleep and sleep-disordered breathing in the form of sleep apnea. Clinicians should proactively inquire about sleep disorder complaints in general and movement disorders and sleep apnea in particular. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors have been shown to have beneficial effects on global symptoms of PTSD in several randomized controlled trials compared to placebo, but their effects on sleep symptoms have been variable and modest at best. On the other hand, cognitive behavioral therapy targeted to PTSD and the selective alpha-1 adrenergic antagonist prazosin have been shown to be particularly effective for the treatment of PTSD-associated insomnia and nightmares. Current guidelines caution against the prescribing of benzodiazepines or other hypnotics in the management of PTSD since there is evidence that benzodiazepines may interfere with psychotherapy treatments that are part of first-line interventions in PTSD. 
Childhood trauma may lead to a number of unfavorable outcomes, including increased utilization of healthcare resources. However, the relationship between trauma in childhood and compliance with healthcare in adulthood has been infrequently studied. Of the available studies, most are in the areas of substance abuse or HIV and AIDS, and most indicate compliance problems. However, these studies consist of relatively atypical populations, and findings may not apply to primary care populations. In addition, most of these studies only entail one variable for healthcare compliance, typically compliance with medication. Likewise, only one or two childhood trauma variables have been examined, usually sexual abuse alone or sexual and physical abuse together. In this cross-sectional study, Sansone and colleagues examined five types of childhood trauma and their relationships with four healthcare adherence variables in a consecutive sample of 272 internal medicine outpatients. The five types of childhood trauma assessed were witnessing violence, physical neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. Participants were recruited after they registered for clinical service because surveys needed to be completed before appointments with providers. Each participant completed a 10-minute survey Findings indicated that a composite score of childhood trauma in which the authors added together the number of childhood traumas demonstrated relationships with some healthcare compliance variables, but not others. One interpretation of these findings is that the subjective healthcare compliance variables tended to indicate compliance, whereas the objective healthcare compliance variables tended to indicate noncompliance. Only further research will tease out these nuances, but there appear to be some healthcare compliance issues among those patients who have been traumatized in childhood. Assessment of decision-making capacity in psychiatric patients with medical illness can be complex and confusing, especially when these patients are refusing care, and healthcare professionals often assess capacity differently in practice. Provided their patients have some understanding of their illness and some plans for meeting basic needs, psychiatrists are often inclined to give patients the freedom to refuse care even if they do not exhibit a full understanding of the medical facts of their case and why they are refusing treatment. Adult medicine physicians, in contrast, are inclined to require patients to state a more complete understanding of the benefits and burdens of evaluation and treatment before allowing them to refuse care when their refusals might result in adverse medical outcomes. In this article, the authors present three cases that exemplify the tension between these approaches and highlight the role of hospital ethics consultation in addressing this conflict. Sadness is a normal and universal emotional expression of grief, loss, hopelessness, stress, discouragement, or loneliness. However, sadness can also be a harbinger of a wide variety of common and serious medical and psychiatric illnesses which are easily missed by many clinicians. 
Sadness is prevalent among hospitalized medical and surgical patients and should be evaluated by any clinician who recognizes or suspects that a patient is sad. Physicians should consider a broad differential diagnosis, including medical, neurologic, and psychiatric problems in their assessment. This article from our Rounds in the General Hospital section explores the importance of evaluating sadness in patients, the potential etiologies for sadness, and approaches to the management of sadness that are based on an underlying etiology. If you ever have had thoughts about how you could or should respond to your patient's sadness or tears, and wondered whose role it was to explore the patient's sadness, then this article should prove useful to your practice. As publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, it gives me great pleasure to announce the launch of a state-of-the-art online job platform to serve our readers. The CNS Job Market is now open for business at cnsjobmarket.com. Our goal is to serve both job candidates who seek career choices within the CNS arena and employers who seek qualified health care professionals. Just as you rely on the primary care companion for CNS disorders for trusted content, now you can rely on us for career opportunities and recruitment needs. The CNS job market employs the latest innovative technology to make searching for the right job and the right candidate easier. All services such as resume posting, advanced searching, social media integration, and job alerts are free to job seekers. And for employers and recruiters, we offer a range of multimedia advertising opportunities, outreach options, and candidate matching at affordable pricing. Visit us at cnsjobmarket.com, where skilled healthcare professionals and outstanding opportunities meet. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings and the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, as well as many timely case reports, a new entry in our psychotherapy casebook section, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.